On November 24, 1971, a Northwest Orient Airlines Boeing 727 is on its way to Seattle from Portland. When there's a hiccup in the flight, what caused this flight to be one of the most famous and mysterious flights in the history of the United States? Back to the Heartlandings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. Hello. So we've got kind of a weird one this for you guys today. This is a weird today. one. It's a little outside of our wheelhouse, sort of. Kind of. If you do not enjoy this kind of content, I don't want to hear it. Next week, we'll <laughs> have a regular source of content. So there you go. Next week will be a regular episode, but this is not. This month was giving and or veteran stories. If we have not done the episode yet, because who knows... <laughs> At this point, what will happen? I mean, this Who comes knows? out the 16th. Okay, yeah. So, veteran or... Giving. Giving stories. I was going to say thankful stories, but giving stories. Thank would you. would be great. Please and thank you. You can check out the merch page on our website. And you can get a free newsletter emailed to you every month. Check out the... TikTok. TikTok. Yeah. We got one TikTok. Woo! It's Hard Landings Podcast, for those of you who couldn't guess that I don't one. even think I follow it yet. Trash. I, I did. I did. I, I need to, Trash. Obviously. I know. <laughs> All right. So, what are we covering today? Me? What are we covering today, Miranda? It's <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be my line this time. Because... We, we all have a part in this, we, this time. Yeah, I'm starting this time. And we don't have a guest. No, we do not. So, again, different kind of episode. Today, we're going to cover Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305. I will not get, give away... You will figure it out by the end of my notes. Oh, we're not giving it away? You will get what's going let's, on. Let's wait till we get there. You'll figure it out. Okay. You'll, you'll figure it out as we go. It is also known as Norjack. We will leave it at that. Okay. This flight was a domestic passenger flight from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington on November 24th, 1971. Which was the day before Thanksgiving, by the way. Keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. Because it's kind of horrifying and horrible. The flight took place on a Boeing 727-100 with the registration November 467 Uniform Sierra. There were six crew members on board. The captain, the first officer, the flight engineer, and three flight attendants. We'll get into names later. There were 36 passengers on board for the short flight to Seattle. The very short. Very short. It is like, what, 30 minutes? 30 minutes. 30 minutes? The captain was William A. Scott. The first officer was Ratatschek. I think that's how you say his name. That's his last name. I could not find his first name. Uh, There's a Scott somewhere? Scott is the captain. Scott's the captain. That's his last name. Yeah. Oh. And the flight engineer was Harold E. Anderson. All hours are unknown. You'll figure that out in a second. Why? The flight took off without issue from Portland at 2.50 p.m. local time. Then something unthinkable happens. Going back to before the flight even took off. A man, who was very plain and nondescript, calling himself Dan Cooper, approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland, Oregon. He used cash to buy a one-way ticket to Seattle on flight 305. A whopping $20 ticket. Oh, man, I wish. Yeah. Cooper was a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s, wearing a business suit with a black tie and white shirt. He ordered a bourbon and soda while he was waiting for the flight to take off. And here is where I have Nick continue with the story. With the flight airborne and only about a third full, they raced through the afternoon sky for the 30-minute hop to Seattle. Cooper, believed to be seated in seat 18C, Charlie, but possibly in 18 Echo or 15 Delta, sat silently with a standard black briefcase. A flight attendant by the name of Florence Schaffner whose jump seat was closest to Mr. Cooper at the rear of the airplane near a set of built-in air stairs, and shortly after takeoff, Mr. Cooper handed that flight attendant a note. Not being the first time that something like this had happened, she figured that the note was just a man's phone number, as he appeared to be just a lonely traveling businessman. She didn't immediately read the note, and instead placed it into her purse, and continued with her duties. She figured it was just a cocky passenger giving her their phone number. Yes. But then what he did next stunned her and flipped the whole situation upside down and began one of the greatest mysteries in modern history. He leaned over to that flight attendant and stated, quote, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb, end quote. Uh-oh. Chills. In disbelief, she retrieved the note from her purse and opened it. There, handwritten in all capital letters, was a note that informed her of the bomb, 
and instructed her to sit next to him. She did as the note said and sat beside him in shock. In a soft-spoken voice, she asked the man to see the bomb. He obliged and briefly opened <laughs> the briefcase. <laughs> he briefly... Oh, briefly opened I the briefcase. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I took me a second, too. <laughs> like, what are you... What? I'm like, what's the joke? I don't get it. Garbage. <laughs> he obliged and briefly opened the briefcase for the flight attendant to get a look at the device, which appeared to be eight red cylinders, two rows of four stacked together, and many red wires running between them and a large battery. He then closed the case and began to calmly state his demands. He requested $200,000 in negotiable American currency, quote-unquote. This is the equivalent of like $1.3 million today. He also asked for, I believe, in all 20s. Yes, it doesn't specifically say that anywhere that I could find, but that is the thing. I have listened to many podcasts on this. Yes, FYI, our resources for this are Wikipedia and the FBI. And, and so, that's why we drink. Yes, and that's as far as it's going to go, because we didn't have time to read any books on this. Nick had jury duty this I week. had, I, I, not just jury duty, I was on a criminal trial, so... <laughs> we'll talk more <laughs> about that in the post-episode. So, so time was limited, but I did as best as I could with this, because this is a very interesting story that I know quite a bit about. Anyways. Also, how big of a d*** do you gotta be to be like, I want this much money, but also, you have to give it to me in all 20s. Yeah, right. You can't use hundreds, you have to give it to me in 20s. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I get that. <laughs> he also requested four parachutes two primary, and two reserve parachutes. Finally, he requested that a fuel truck be standing by in Seattle when they arrive. All of this was put into a new note, and the flight attendant took this to the cockpit and delivered it to the flight crew. She then returned to the passenger cabin to Mr. Cooper wearing a pair of dark sunglasses. The captain then informed the air traffic controller and their company radio of the situation. The Seattle ATC contacted local and federal authorities. The captain then informed the other passengers on board over the PA that their arrival into Seattle would be delayed due to a, quote, minor mechanical difficulty, end quote. This 30-minute flight now turned into a two-hour and 30-minute flight. Ugh. The flight then entered a holding pattern over the Puget Sound for two hours while the demands were discussed and arranged. The president of Northwest Orient, Donald Nyrup, agreed to pay the ransom and ordered all employees involved in this to cooperate with all the demands of the hijacker. Which was how things were done back then with yes, hijackers. pretty hefty. This would not be the case No, today. We do no. not negotiate with, with terrorists. terrorists. No, and also, this would not be up to the company anymore. Nope. No. It would be up to the FBI. Yes, and authorities and such. Which they did get involved. We'll get into it in a minute. Oh, yes. Well, oh, yes, obviously, because yes, 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 we yes, got yes, most yes. of our resource <laughs> material from the FBI. Yes. So. As they circled, Mr. Cooper noted specifics about the terrain and the city below indicating that he was very familiar with the area. The whole time... I, I believe at one point he's like, oh, look, it's Tacoma. Yes, and there's McCord Air Force Base. Like, these are things he just knew. I couldn't do that. Nope. I could. But I know you could. I'm, just because yeah. you're weird. I like maps and airports and things. <laughs> okay. The whole time that this is happening, Mr. Cooper appears very calm and polite. How polite? Well, he ordered another bourbon and soda and paid his tab, plus offered the change to the flight attendant that helped him. Please. <laughs> I know. <laughs> He also, this goes further, he also offered to the flight crew to request meals in his demands for them before they landed in Seattle. So he was like, you guys want dinner? I'll ask them. <laughs> He's like, I got a bomb. I can get you anything you want. <laughs> At least he was nice to the other passengers who he would potentially kill. He was That's nice. Yeah, apparently he was very nice, very calm, very polite to everybody. It, it's just, fun fact, D.B. Cooper was just a weirdo like Nick who likes... <laughs> maps and airports i guess is there something you like, need to tell us dear <laughs> no well I don't nick I, wasn't bored yet so no i don't like to, i don't like I, yeah I, I like to travel on planes i don't like to i don't think them. even your parents were born at this point so yes no <laughs> <laughs> anyways meanwhile on the ground the fbi sourced several banks in the seattle area for the two hundred thousand dollars they had to go to many it turned out. Oh, you mean they don't just have $200,000 in 20s laying around? Most don't. They acquired 10,000 unmarked $20 bills and made a microfilm photograph of each one That's for record. That's so freaking long. Yep, for record, before they were to be put on the airplane. Some parachutes were offered by McCord Air Force Base personnel, but Mr. Cooper refused these and requested civilian-type 
with a manual ripcord. This is where David will start to yeah. have a lot to say. Probably because he couldn't do, he wasn't able to train on military shoots. So he was like, yeah, Yes. No. He apparently, one of the ones that was sourced from him, for him from the civilian side was a sport parachute too. And he didn't know that. He doesn't know any of this. He doesn't know parachutes, which we'll get into. These were obtained from a local skydiving school in Seattle. 5.24 p.m. It was reported to Mr. Cooper that his demands had been met and that they would be landing soon. He then requested that the captain taxi to an isolated apron that is brightly lit and that all window shades be closed to avoid any visual for potential snipers. Police snipers. Ooh. Yeah, he didn't want to be seen, so he had them close all of the window shades. I mean, he was smart. I mean, that's using least... the big wrinkle brain there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think I would have thought of that. Not that I would, you know, threaten an entire <laughs> I, aircraft. No, but, but like... today, today I definitely would have thought of that. There's, yeah, sure. But there's so many things going on here that if you pay attention to the little details, you'll start to realize he is extremely detail-oriented. Yeah, he thought this through. Oh, This wasn't like man. A, a spur-of-the-minute decision. This was definitely this not. This was like months, potentially years in the making. Yes. The plane landed at 5.39 p.m., an hour after sunset, and taxied to a position like that requested by Mr. Cooper before the engines were shut down. Al Lee, the Northwest Orient Operations Manager for Seattle, then approached the plane at the rear in street clothes to deliver the money in a knapsack and parachutes to one of the flight attendants at the aft air stairs. He approached in street clothes because, from what I read, and this is, of course, Wikipedia, the best of all sources, was because he didn't want his airline uniform to come across like a police uniform to Mr. Oh. Cooper. So makes he approached sense. in street clothes. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yes. Good for you for thinking of that. Also yes. using your big wrinkle brain. Yes. With money and parachutes in hand, Mr. Cooper allowed all of the passengers, as well as two of the flight attendants, to leave the plane, including the flight attendant that he originally handed the note to. The only people to remain on board were the three flight crew, one flight attendant by the name of Tina McClough, and himself. The aircraft then began to be refueled. While this was being completed, Mr. Cooper went to the cockpit to discuss with the flight crew what he wanted next. He requested that they depart Seattle and fly on a southeast course toward Mexico City. He also requested that they fly at the slowest airspeed possible, about 100 knots, and maintain about 10,000 feet. He required that the crew leave the landing gear down and the wing flaps extended to 15 degrees. He does realize he could put the airplane in a dangerous situation, right? Like a stall? stall? He told them, keep it as close to stall as possible. Okay. He told them that? He yes. told them that. Now. There's you, a reason for that. Did you note all of the little things I just said? Yeah. So flaps. 15 degrees. 15 gear, degrees. Gear down. Gear down. Keeping speed his, and altitude. Yeah. Which means it, it, he's potentially a pilot. And this is also a 727. This means that he knows a lot more than the average Joe about this airplane. Something he in particular did his research or he's a pilot. Yes. Well, and... So his little escape method, which we'll get to in a second, not everyone knows this about this particular aircraft. So nope. he definitely knew He more. definitely knew a lot more than the average Joe. He also requested that the cabin remain unpressurized. At 10,000 feet, this is easy enough. After doing some calculations, the crew informed Mr. Cooper that the plane could not hold enough fuel to make it to Mexico City. The only plane only had about 1,000 nautical miles of range. He doesn't care. Right. <laughs> he, he does not care. They informed him that they would have to make another stop, and Cooper agreed to this. Oh, okay. And they discussed the options. They decided that they would stop over at Reno in Nevada. Hmm. For Northern fuel. Nevada. Yes, Northern Nevada. Cooper then requested that they depart with the rear air stairs extended. This concerned the crew, so they checked in with their operations. Operations replied that they believed that this is too unsafe to do. So they told Mr. Cooper that they would not be doing this. Mr. Cooper replied that it was in fact safe, but that he would not argue any further. He would simply deploy the stairs once they were airborne. Oh, how polite. Yes. The fueling operation was taking longer than planned, because there was vapor lock in one of the pump mechanisms on the fuel truck, and this actually happened. This wasn't... You can imagine that tense situation where they're like, no, 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 really, we're not trying to delay this. This is just actually happening. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, we're just... Please don't blow us up. Thank you. <laughs> While this delay was occurring, an FAA official on site requested a face-to-face -face meeting with Cooper 
on the airplane. But he declined to do this. Yeah, that's probably pretty from, smart. From yeah. Cooper's perspective, I'll be like, no. Yeah. From his perspective, <laughs> no. too. It's like, who, who do you think you are? No, yeah. I'm holding <laughs> well, the bomb. <laughs> okay, so this is a tactic with law enforcement to try to de-escalate the situation yes. and negotiate. And all. So I understand, but I also understand where Cooper's like, do you think I'm an idiot? Right. Honestly, at this point, after all the stuff that you that you we've already gone through, if you haven't figured out this guy is an extremely intelligent, you are dumb yourself. I all, is... It's it's worth a shot. Yes. yes. There's a few things that we get into where I don't know. I mean, his plan is pretty pretty freaking smart, is but it, also it's also not a little dumb. Yeah, it's a little dumb. <laughs> we'll we'll get to that we'll later. get to the dumb part in a yes. second. Finally, the fueling was complete. The doors were closed. The engine started, and the airplane was configured for the flight. At 7.40 p.m., the airplane took to the skies once more and began flying toward Reno. Once airborne, the aircraft was intercepted by two Air Force F-106 fighters. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Yep. They would fly just behind the plane with one above it and the other just below it. A third airplane, a T-33 trainer jet, which was on a mission for Air National Guard, all that stuff, tracked the flight, but turned back just before the Oregon-California border due to low fuel. For some reason, there's no testimony from these people, which we'll talk about later, but there is from the F-106. A short time after takeoff, Mr. Cooper instructed the flight attendant to go into the cockpit with the flight crew and close the door. She complied with this, but glanced back at Mr. Cooper just before closing the door to the cockpit and witnessed him tying something, possibly the bag of money, around his waist. Mr. Cooper then donned the older and less professional of the two primary parachutes and put it on, on his back, he also selected a dummy, non-functional reserve parachute with an inoperative ripcord. Okay, just to go on a small rant, the chute is marked with an X. Yes, 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 I get that. How and dumb! And they said to experienced skydivers, they would know this, but he didn't. This showed that he was not an experienced skydiver. He, he selected a dummy, non-functional reserve parachute with an inoperative ripcord and carried that with him as well. This was selected by the flight school as an... It was a complete accident. They didn't intend to select a non-working parachute, they admitted later. He then cannibalized, quote-unquote, the other reserve chute, which was functional, by the way. That was the functional one. So he didn't know, and likely used the cords from that chute to tie the money bag shut and tie it around his waist. Because this is one of those really old bank bags... Like you see in cartoons, that's yeah. basically just a sack. There's no yep. great way to secure it, so he just tied it to himself. Right. It's not like a tidy messenger bag. You can just loop over your shoulder. Nope. And then he left that reserve chute that was the functional one after he, before he cannibalized it, and he left the professional sport chute behind and took the not-as-great one. This just showed that he didn't know much. And by the way, all of this came out in 2007. Oh, well. From the FBI. <laughs> so a lot more recent. Anyways, around 8 p.m., a warning light began displaying in the cockpit that indicated that the air stairs were open. Which is possible to do on the 727. Yes. We'll talk about this in a second. One of the pilots asked over the PA if Mr. Cooper needed assistance with the air stairs. Do you need help, sir? He replied that he did not need any assistance. This was the last time that Mr. Cooper would communicate with the flight crew or anybody. He literally just said no. There was then a noticeable change in air pressure in the cabin as the air stairs dropped. Yes, again, possible on the 727. We'll talk about why. These are gravity air stairs. They can drop with gravity. That would be why. Shortly after 8.13 p.m., the airplane suddenly had an upward movement of the nose that required trimming the airplane. Nothing else occurred during the flight, and they landed without incident, as planned, at Reno. So the airplane literally, like, pitched up, and they had to trim the airplane back down. And then they continued on after that, hearing nothing from Mr. Cooper, experiencing nothing. And they landed the plane, as planned, at Reno, at about 10.15 p.m., all the while being trailed by those F-106s. And the F-106s saw the door open, but noted nothing else. Yeah, they never saw anything. They never saw anything else. And the T-33 was present for all of this, too, but didn't note anything. Didn't say anything, apparently. Mm. I don't know. Anyways, so they landed in Reno at 10.15. They arrived to many emergency services and law enforcement, including city police, state troopers, sheriffs, and the FBI. They surrounded the aircraft and almost immediately began searching the aircraft inside and out, looking for the strange hijacker. But it soon became apparent that he wasn't there. He had, in fact, jumped 
from the rear of the airplane around 8.13 p.m. Dun, dun, dun. And that's it. So we go and take a break. And, Eat some brownies. And you'll hear what happens after that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. Hello. Let's get into the investigation. This investigation was performed by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, the FBI, in what would become one of their longest and most exhaustive investigations. The Bureau called the incident the Northwest Hijacking, or NORJAC for short, and they interviewed hundreds of people and followed leads to every corner of the country. After the plane landed, the investigation split into two paths. Who is he? And where is he? Of a more time-sensitive matter, the search for the mysterious man began. Investigators immediately wanted to start searching for the skyjacker on the ground, but needed to know where to look. Based on information given to them by the flight crew for the plane's route and configuration, as well as a jump of about 8.13, since that's when the tail suddenly moved upward, they were able to estimate the drop zone as somewhere in the Lewis River area just south of Mount St. Helens, specifically in a lake formed by a man-made dam. Does this sound familiar at all to you, Nick? Yes. You and I have been there. Yes. And Brendan. Brendan, Nick, and I actually went pontooning in this exact lake in June with Al. Yep. So that's weird and cool. Investigators scoured the area, going door to door, inquiring about if anyone had seen Cooper. Search teams composed of both the FBI and the local sheriff's office searched the quote-unquote mountainous wilderness, both on foot and by helicopter. I say mountainous, but scoff as the area's mere hills in the eyes of Coloradoans. Yes. Yep. In the eyes of people who live by the Rockies. I mean, Mount Rainier is definitely a mountain. Oh no, yes, that is definitely a mountain, <laughs> but this area is not. Yeah. Mount St. Helens, yes. But, but having seen this area, it's, it's hills. Yes. Anyway, I digress. They even actually brought in a submarine to search the 200-foot deep lake. I mean, I imagine this is like a tiny submarine. This isn't like a full-blown naval submarine. submarine. (laughs) Also, the lake, as as you're frantically pontooning across it, does not seem like it's 200 feet deep. By sky, many aircraft, both fixed-wing and rotorcraft, from the Oregon Army National Guard, flew the length of the flight path, hoping to find an abandoned parachute canopy, but to no avail. They found many broken treetops and other things that looked like parachute canopies from the air, but subsequent on-foot investigation proved otherwise. But alas, this was late 1971, and winter had set in, inhibiting further searches. Come the spring thaw of 1972, searches resumed by the FBI with some Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, hoping to find any evidence and morbidly hoping that Mr. Cooper had not survived the parachute jump since it was an unsteerable chute in a rainstorm in the cold of November, and his clothing was not appropriate for jumping and landing in the forested region. So chances are he probably died. In March, a body was found at the old Cedar Creek Grist Mill in northern Clark County, found with a single stab wound to the heart and thrown into a turbine at the bottom of the mill's 25-foot silo. But in April, the body was identified as 18-year-old Barbara Ann Derry, who had been kidnapped. From what I can tell, this case wasn't solved either. Oh, that's nice. Yep. They're like, oh, this must be the guy. And then someone smart looked at it and was like, that's a girl. That's a girl. And it took weeks for someone to say, no, that's a girl. Yeah, there's another murder vaguely tied with this case as well. And it's much more recent. It was in 2013. The head of the, or the lead instructor of the skydiving school where these parachutes came from, who was the instructor at the time Mm. that these parachutes provided, was murdered in 2013. Jeez. And there's, I believe it's still an open case as well, although I don't remember. Oh my god. And so this is another one of those, like, was this also, maybe, involved somehow? Okay, well, I think we can... Because he provided bad shoots? But if you think about it, if he was in his potential 40s in 1970s, that means he was in, what, his 70s? 80s? 2013? 90s. So would, would it be him? Probably not. If they got his age right, based yeah. on what he looked like. Yeah. Don't know. But anyways. Anyways, back on track. 
After 18 days in March and a further 18 days in April, this search also ceased. In 1978, several years later, a placard was found that detailed how to lower the aft stairs on a Boeing 727. That definitely seems relevant. Uh, maybe? And it was found 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington. Oh, I was going to say, what? (laughs) (laughs) Not here. There's a Castle Rock, Colorado. We're not talking. Castle Rock, Washington, quite a bit north of the original search area. And then, wait! The pilot realized he was wrong. His flight path ended up being different than what he thought, and the new and more accurate flight path would have put D.B. Cooper closer to the drainage area of the Washugo River, further south than originally estimated. But at that point, it was freelancers who searched, and no one turned up anything. Any hopes of finding anything was pretty much obliterated in 1980. Anyone remember what happened that year? 1980? Mm Mm-hmm. I do. It's a big event. It is pretty big, but I don't blame you for not knowing since you're not from there. What happened? Mount St. Helens erupted. Oh, yeah. Kaboom. It blew everything in the native area there and covered in ash. Yeah. In Washington? Yeah. (gasps) That's right. In all of southern Washington. We we, uh, we, uh, uh, talked about that when we were in Washington the first time. Yeah. So the lake that they originally thought it was near, yeah, that's right next to Mount St. Helens. So, bad news. Bad time. Let's transition. Who is the man? The FBI scoured the cabin for evidence, the plane cabin, for reference. I realize that might have been confusing. They found over 60 unidentified latent prints, eight Raleigh cigarette butts, two of the four parachutes, and Cooper's clip-on tie. Classy. Didn't even have the guts to wear a real tie. All of the evidence, plus hundreds of interviews, resulted in a composite sketch and many ensuing suspects. The pictures of the composite sketches are on our website, both with and without the shades. They're pretty famous. Yes. People. Yeah, if you haven't seen them, you definitely don't know about if this you've case. If you ever heard of D.B. Cooper, you've probably seen these photos. We will also have a link to the FBI's gallery for this particular case, which includes a picture of the clip-on tie with its mother-of-pearl tie tack. I don't know why you would need a tie tack on a clip-on tie. Hey, don't ask me. <laughs> you can't ask D.B. Cooper either. Nope. Five years into the investigation, there had already been more than 800 suspects, though all but two dozen were eliminated. FBI agents interviewed many a fellow in the area along the route from Seattle to Reno named Cooper in case the culprit was dumb enough to use his own name. This is probably not the case. No. Given everything else about him... But it's relevant, because in passing, a reporter heard an agent say they had interviewed a D.B. Cooper, and mistakenly reported that to be the name of the Skyjacker, and the name propagated through the media, and it stuck ever since, especially since the FBI never really corrected the record. Everything from the case was Dan Cooper, but it's known as D.B. Cooper. He presented himself as Dan Cooper at the ticket counter and to the flight attendant. So it's not necessarily a typo, but it's... As, it's like human error. Yeah, and it's just perpetuated through history. Yeah, it was never fixed. It's the same thing that goes with the SR-71. There's a fun one. Oh, boy. The SR-71 was originally the RS-71 for reconnaissance. And then the president. And then the president. It was There's speculation, but the real story goes that it was written incorrectly on his press release. Mm-hmm. which, long story about why they had to have a press release, but there was a press release, and it was written incorrectly, and this was the first time that this was going to come to light to the public, and when he said SR-71, in order not to go against the president's word, nobody made the correction, and eventually it just became the SR-71. Yay, for human error perpetuated through history. It's pretty much the same thing. Okay, so we don't know where he is, we don't know who he is, but we do know one thing. We know the serial numbers of the cash he was given. A month after the incident, the FBI sent out these serial numbers to places that regularly dealt with large quantities of cash. Think banks, casinos, you get the idea. Yep. The airline Northwest Orient offered a reward of up to $25,000 for anyone who could recover the cash. In 1972, the serial numbers were released to the public and can be found on the FBI's website, which we have linked on our website. Could you imagine Finding this that many years bill? later, you look at your $20 bill and go, Holy (laughs) guys, I found one. Probably not. More than likely at this point, it's probably been uncirculated if it's out there. Yeah, probably. But they would report it if they found it. Yep. 
1973, the Oregon Journal published them again and offered a $1,000 reward for any of the real bills, even if it's just one. And this was followed by similar rewards in the Pacific Northwest region, but no one was ever able to re to produce any of the genuine bills. There were many an attempt at fraudulent claims. Of course. Of course. As humankind is wont to do. Eventually, a few years later, the airline got reimbursed the ransom through insurance. I would hope so. Now, are you ready to hear about a lucky kid? A month and a half before Mount St. Helens blew her top off, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was on a vacation with his fam-bam on the Columbia River, which splits Washington and Oregon. They were about nine miles downstream of Vancouver, Washington. Basically, Washington. It's, part of, it's part of the Portland metro area. Yeah. He, much like me when I was a child, and maybe still am, volunteered to start the campfire. <laughs> and started digging around the riverbank where he found three packets of cash. The bills were disintegrated. There's pictures of them on our website. But they were still bundled in two packets of 100 bills each and one packet of only 90 bills for a total of $5,800. Their discovery site validates the theory that Cooper landed near the Washougal River, which merges with the Columbia, but what is never explained is why one packet was missing 10 bills and why they were separate from the rest of the money. Many tests were done on the sediment found in the bill packets to determine where they came from, but no one came to a concise and verified conclusion. After six years, the bills were split between the insurance company and now 14-year-old Brian. In 2008, Brian sold 15 of the bills for a total of $37,000 at an auction. Wow. Smart kid. Yes, he is not a kid at this point. Did they have the... Yes. Sorry, I kind of blacked out for the past, like, two minutes. Don't ask me why. <laughs> Did they have the serial numbers on them? Yep. Yes. Okay. These were They verified. were confirmed. This is the only so confirmed the, cash. They, he at least landed somewhere near there. Yes. Or cash fell out or, near there. Or he's he buried. traveled with it somewhere through there, or we don't know. There's a ton of theories. Look on the Wikipedia page for all the theories. That's what I got. Uh, none of the remaining bills have ever been found. Over the years, the FBI has provided more information to the public to aid in the investigation. They revealed that a partial DNA profile was generated from touch DNA on the clip-on tie, but it's hard to say if D.B. Cooper was truly the donor of that sample. The rest can be found on the Wikipedia page for D.B. Cooper, which is where I got most of, if not all, of my notes, as did these two. Wouldn't it be weird? Sorry, I don't know why my brain went here. You have a grandfather, right? He's really old. Mm-hmm. And eventually he tells you, hey, I have a cabin. Underneath the floorboards is a sack of money. Do you know how many deathbed confessions there were? Yeah, funny story about that, but there's actually a lot of old guys who have done this. <laughs> <laughs> who have claimed to be D.B. Cooper. So, before we get into that, I do just want to mention that the FBI officially closed this case in 2016 and will only reopen it if physical evidence is presented. Yeah, so, I mean, it's so late now, right? Like, there's no reason for it to stay open. But even the FBI is like, I mean, the biggest thing about this is, okay, nobody got hurt. Nobody was killed. Like, there, this was, or maybe, D.B. <laughs> Cooper, we don't know. But anyways, point being is like, this is such a strange mystery that even the FBI is like, yeah, this is kind of fun. You guys go have fun with this. Just yeah. like, good luck. If you find something, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, let us know. <laughs> Gotta let us know. But like, go for it. So, now the open-ended question. Still. Who is D.B. Cooper? I'm going to read a bunch of crap off of the Wikipedia. Most wonderful resource of all time. Don't come for me. Definitely some inaccuracies throughout, so... They have an entire section of just suspects. I did not take notes on any of this because there is so much. And there can be so much speculation on these. So between 1971 and 2016, when the case was closed, the FBI processed over a thousand serious suspects. Cringe. Yeah. Good for them, I guess. Including many publicity seekers and deathbed confessors. Yep. There are many a notable one. I'm going to go through a couple of them. One guy from Minnesota in 2003 watched a documentary, much as uh, I want to do, about the hijacking and came to the conclusion that his brother was D.B. Cooper. Okay. What? Yep. He tried to convince the FBI and... Eventually contacted a private investigator in New York City. A detective published a book postulating that this individual named Kenneth Peter Christensen, the, the brother of Lau Christensen, was the hijacker. There was an episode of Brad Meltzer's Decoded, also linked Christensen to the hijacking. 
the reason that people thought he was is because in 1944, he was in the army and trained as a... Paratrooper. Yep. So he would know how to use old parachutes. See, I already have a problem with that, though, because... He would know how to spot a dummy. D.B. Cooper obviously picked all the wrong things with parachutes. And I don't know if maybe that was intentional, but it definitely wouldn't be a safe choice given all the circumstances. Well, mind you, this is 30 years prior that he was in the military, and he was deployed in 1945 at the end of World War II. He barely got to jump. Right. After leaving the Army, he joined a certain airline in 1954 as a mechanic. Northwest Orient. Uh-huh. He became a flight attendant and then a purser out of Seattle. Yes, there's many coincidences. Many coinkadinks. He was 45 at the time of the hijacking, but was shorter and thinner than the descriptions of Cooper. He did smoke, as did uh, Mr. Cooper, and had a particular fondness for bourbon, as did Mr. Cooper. He was left-handed, which has been alleged of Cooper since his tie tack was on the left side of his tie, which I guess isn't normal. I don't wear ties. A couple months after the hijacking, Christensen bought a house, so that's suspicious. Yeah. And then while dying of cancer in 1994, he told his brother, there is something you should know. But I cannot tell you. Dead. (laughs) And Lyle didn't, like, keep asking him, no, no, what do you have to tell me? He didn't think anything of it. I mean, I guess it's a potential. There's a lot of potentials that are actually pretty similar to this, though. That's the weird thing. After Kenneth Christensen's death, many family members found valuables, gold coins, a valuable stamp collection, and over $200,000 in his bank accounts. Why is that number, uh... Relevant? Yeah. Yeah, because well, he had $200,000. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which, okay, fine. But then, but that was like several years after the fact, though. Like, if you're using all of that money, eventually it would go down unless you have a job to recoup the well, cost And spent. there is no good way to get that money into a bank account. Without with, it being suspicious. Without those serial numbers being found. Oh, you're right. So I, I just don't understand how that can be. T- I mean, like, is this guy shady? Hell yeah. Is he Cooper? I don't think so. (laughs) I don't know. Other things that ruled him out, he didn't buy the house in cash. Right. He got a mortgage. Oh, yeah. He had $200,000 in his bank account. Yep. Different. And so they cite the FBI stands that he was never considered a prime suspect because of a poor match to physical descriptions, a level of skydiving expertise above D.B. Cooper. Right. And an absence of direct incriminating evidence. Yep, I, I agree with all those things. So He just doesn't quite fit. He was also dead. Yeah. So, like, there's no way to, like, actually make sure that he is Cooper, because he's dead. At this point in time, I think it's pretty fair to say D.B. Cooper is most likely dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Especially now? Yes. Yes, most likely. And so, that said, <laughs> we'll probably never know. We might not ever. Well, hold on. I still have. I still have more suspects. Oh, I know. I know. Okay, so L. D. Cooper, sure. Lynn Doyle Cooper was a leather worker and Korean War veteran. Was proposed as a suspect by his niece in July of 2011. She recalled that her uncle and another uncle planned something very mischievous, using expensive walkie-talkies at her grandmother's house in Sisters, Oregon, 150 miles southeast of Portland. And then the next day, the plane was hijacked. So that's weird. That is suspicious, but there was no mention of walkie-talkies Yeah. Involved. No. Later, her parents came to believe that L.D. Cooper was the hijacker. Why? He was obsessed with a Canadian comic book hero named Dan Cooper. Dan Cooper. There you go. Yeah. And had one of these comic books thumbtacked to his wall. It's actually believed that that's why D.B. Cooper chose to present himself as Dan Cooper. It was because of a Canadian comic book series. Yeah. Weird. Yes. That's one of the theories, of course. That's not proven, but that's one of the thoughts. So here's an interesting one. This one came up on the And That's Why We Drink episode, which was actually from their live show in somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. I don't remember where. Barbara Dayton. Barbara. A woman. Yeah. A transgender woman. Oh, okay. Who was a recreational pilot and librarian born as Robert Dayton. Served as a merchant marine and then in the army during World War II. And they, she had aspired to be a professional airline pilot, but was not given 
any of the certifications to do so because of her gender identity. Because she was transgender? Uh-huh. This is the 70s we're talking about. Yeah, I realize. So Dayton claimed to have staged the Cooper hijacking dressed as a man to get back at the airline field and the FAA whose insurmountable rules and conditions had prevented her from being an airline pilot. She said that the ransom money was hidden in a cistern near Woodburn, a suburban area south of Portland, but eventually recanted the entire thing. Yeah, she's just like, nah, never mind, it was just a joke. That's not a joke. No. That's a way to get yourself arrested. Yeah. I don't know about arrested... (laughs) But I mean, if there was get, enough solid evidence... Right. There's definitely not unless they found those cisterns, but no, it's yeah. like... No, it was just... Yeah. It's enough to be suspicious. It's okay, suspicious. so I'm going to go through one more. Again, there's a huge list of these on the Wikipedia page, so go feel free to delve into the internet. There's so much speculation and mystery, and I'm sure people have great times with this. Now, I believe that D.B. Cooper died in attempting to land. He is probably buried... There, After Mount St. Helens went boom. Even the FBI said, like, there's a really, really high chance that he just died Bifted. trying to jump out of that airplane. However, if I was to name a suspect, this would be the guy. His name is Richard McCoy Jr. He was an Army veteran who served two tours in Vietnam, first as a demolition expert, bomb, okay, and later with the Green Berets as a helicopter pilot. Okay. He then became a warrant officer in the Utah National Guard and an avid recreational skydiver. Now, the reason that I find this so very intriguing. On April 7th, 1972, McCoy staged the best known of the so-called copycat hijackings. He boarded United Airlines Flight 855, a Boeing 727 with aft stairs, in Denver, Colorado. Hello. And brandishing what later proved to be a paperweight resembling a hand grenade and an unloaded handgun, he demanded four parachutes and $500,000. After delivery of the money and parachutes at San Francisco International Airport, he ordered the aircraft back to the sky and bailed out over Provo, Utah, leaving behind handwritten hijacking instructions and fingerprints on a magazine he'd been reading. He was arrested, however, on April 9th with the ransom cash in possession and received a 45-year sentence. He escaped... From the penitentiary with several accomplices by crashing a garbage truck through the main gate. That okay. sounds like some movie. <laughs> <laughs> that this sounds is... like some like Mission Impossible kind of crap. This is yeah. This, that's quite the story. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. That is quite the story, and that's quite. It's all. It's not quite over. He was tracked down three months later in Virginia Beach and was killed in a shootout with the FBI. The way that DV... that's more TV. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so all of this is quite the crazy story. The thing I have about that is D.B. Cooper was much more sly about the whole thing. Like, definitely way... Well, he... Got away with it way better well, if he if did get away about with it, it. If you think about it, like, if he, if this is the person and he did get away with it the first time, he could have just gotten cocky and was like, I could do this again. And I you get don't know. that. I get that. Also, I am... But he got that dirty the second time? I don't know. You get cocky. It happens. Sure. That's how many criminals been caught in history. Sure. I will say, as I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, I'm looking at a picture of Richard McCoy Jr., and right below it is a picture of the sketch. It's pretty similar. It's pretty spot on. That's fair. So. This, again, there's so many people, though. I would know. never know. I, there's just. Yeah, well, and no one no... is ever the perfect suspect. Even the guy who did it in so many different crimes, it never completely fulfills the profile, you know? Right. So. Also, I'm amazed he managed to pull this off on the 727 with United. Because what year was that in? 72. Yeah. The same year? Well, it was the next year. Yeah, because the original one was in November. Okay, so this is an important thing. Let's talk about something that changed real quick. Something that changed in particular about the 727. We can bring up the other things that changed later. But the thing that changed about the 727 in particular is they added what's known as the Cooper vein. Yep. To the rear air stairs, which keeps the door from opening and flying. And all 727s were mandated to have this. There's an airworthiness directive to have it. So yep. This was so not... people can't just jump off the aircraft? Yeah. Since it's a gravity fed. Because here's the big important thing. The DC-9 also had rear air stairs. But the 727s were gravity driven. Not air hydraulic. Stairs, not hydraulic. So... Big difference, because they were actually possible to be opened in flight. The DC-9s were not. So this was another reason they were like, okay, D.B. Cooper's very familiar with the plane. Specific flap settings, speeds, 
and the, the operation of the aft air stairs. Like, some way, shape, or form, he knew a lot more about this airplane than the average Joe. Some other things that came into effect afterwards, I'm not sure if it was directly tied to the D.B. Cooper case, but the Sky Marshall program took effect. They did say yeah. that it wasn't... It was a consequence of this tied with the very high rate of air hijackings in the United States during those couple of years. 31 in 1970. 31 in 1970. Like, this just doesn't happen anymore at all, ever, period. 19 of them were specifically extorting money, and 15 of those asked for parachutes. Right. And then the remainder of them were all asking to go to Cuba. Another thing that changed, cockpit door peepholes. Didn't mm. exist, but they were a direct consequence of D.B. Cooper. Well, now they're just cameras yes but there are still some peepholes on some airplanes but yes they well, were yes older airplanes obviously have peepholes but this is a direct consequence of db cooper there weren't any on the 727 so they couldn't like see what he was doing once they had the door shut they changed that they also couldn't see if anybody was approaching the door which is also a hazard problem yeah another direct consequence of db cooper they started checking passenger bags before oh, getting hey, on hey, airplanes hey. oh yeah and thus TSA. airport security was born yes thank you db cooper all right so some pop culture references. This story is so crazy, there's no wonder that it's in pop culture so yeah. much. So D.B. Cooper's actions inspired a cult following, obviously, and was expressed in songs, films, and literature. A quote-unquote Cooper Day celebration has been held at the Ariel General Store and Tavern since November 1974, on the 24th. Okay. Except in 2015, where the owner died. By the way, Ariel is the town that is at the end of Lake Merwin yeah. by the dam on the southwest side of the reservoir. Yeah. Yes. Cooper has also appeared in TV series and movies such as Prison Break, The Blacklist, News Radio, Leverage, Journeyman, Renegade, Numbers, 30 Rock, Drunk History, and Loki. Loki was pretty cool because Loki was a... Was yeah. D.B. Cooper? And he, it was it a D.B. Like, Cooper story. It, it, it made was him... On, uh, it was like a dare that Thor had him do be D.B. Cooper. It made him into D.B. Cooper, which is crazy. The it, when the Loki trailer came out... Okay, I, I have not watched any of Loki. I'm so far behind in the MCU. I'm tragic, I know. Me too. But I, I saw that one scene and I immediately texted these guys. I'm like, oh my god, Loki's D.B. Cooper. <laughs> It, to be fair, if you've ever seen it, it's like barely a blip in this season. I know. But the film in 1981, The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, was also a thing. In 2004, a film came out called Without a Paddle, which also had D.B. Cooper in it. In 2020, John Dower released his documentary, quote, The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, end quote, which you can find on HBO Max now. Interesting. That you can watch. We're now. not sponsored. No. No. These but are all I just... I it up and you can watch it. These are all just like fun things because this is... Because there's so much around this that's just such a mystery. And again, like, we can kind of talk about this in a less serious manner than we would even a normal accident. Because none of the passengers or flight crew or anything were, were injured, injured or, or hurt, hurt or anything. Yeah. And it just turned into one of these crazy worldwide mysteries that even some of the best investigative organizations on Earth cannot figure out. So it's just one of those kind of crazy, harmless things to talk about and believe in. And so, of course, there's going to be a lot of speculation and a lot of mention in stories and such, because it's one of those, like, fantasy, crazy stories you'd love yeah, to read about. There, and there's no real harm in it. Sure, the airline for a while missed out on $200,000, and then the insurance company did. I mean, money's money, but, but no nobody's one... life, other than maybe D.B. Cooper Dan himself, Cooper. Dan Cooper himself, was necessarily in, in actual danger. danger. Yeah. Because, by the way... Later on, while they never got the bomb, and by the way, he also reclaimed the original note that he handed to the flight attendant. So there's no actual record or proof of what he said on that note, and she couldn't remember everything. Mm -hmm. So, but other than that, he reclaimed that note, and on top of that, they, they never found the bomb, quote unquote. But investigators did go on to tell the flight attendant that if they had known a little bit more about the bomb, they probably would have gone in to get him, but... She only told him she she only told him later that it was eight red cylinders and they were like, Okay, if it was a bomb, they would probably would have been brown or some other color, but red or like road flares. <laughs> Either road flares or he like painted paper towel rolls red to look like movie style TNT. Yeah, I mean they don't there's no proof whether or not they, they said it was still unlikely that they would have tried to go in and get him. It's too dangerous. 
because they just didn't know. You but, don't want to. You don't want to risk anybody's life, even if it's a fake bomb. Right. right. But they said more than likely what he had in that case were road flares. Solid. So you never know. But anyways, that that was a whole other thing. It was like okay, he he obviously played his cards right and tried to get away with it. We don't know whether or not he did, and we, we may don't never know, know who was. May never know. Generations now have gone on without knowing. And we may never know. I've always been one of those people that I'm like, I wish I was a fly on a wall. And when, when stuff like this happens, because I'm like, I just want to know. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I just want to know. What you, happens. me, and everyone it's else. It's inconsequential to my life, but I want to know. Yeah. like And, like, not just this case, but, like, famous murders and stuff that haven't been solved. Like, I'm like... I want I want to know what happened. So does everyone else, Miranda. And I yet you know. guys watch unsolved mysteries no, and complain I... about it. Stop. Okay? <laughs> Don't come for me. Okay? Every time I finish an episode, I'm like, wait, I don't get to know. And you never will. Well, not always. Not but potentially, yeah. <laughs> I will. Some so will never know. We're not sponsored. But someone at Parcast, which is a famous podcast network took advantage of the fact that people get so irritated with unsolved mysteries and made a podcast called solved Solved mysteries Mysteries. yeah (laughs) again not sponsored no but bless them for seeing that opportunity and taking it nick's coming for me in my life okay (laughs) (laughs) anyways all right that was dan cooper D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper. Or Northwest, Northwest Orient, Orient Airlines, Airlines Flight 307. 305. 305. <laughs> Don't know where I went with that. Or Nor- Don't know where the 7 came from. Or Norjack. Or Norjack. Most importantly, it's D.B. Cooper. Yeah, yeah, it's D.B. Cooper. If you hear that word, it probably triggers something for you. All right. Thank you so much for listening, as always. I hope you enjoyed our kind of weird, different kind of episode. We did try. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, check out the Patreon page if you're not a patron. If you are a patron, you're super cool. Thank you very much. If you're not a patron, you're still cool. Thank you very much for listening this far. But if you want to see what's included with that, go check that out on the website. Or you can look us up on Patreon. Either or works for us. And for you, potentially. We got hundreds of hours of content on there other than episodes. And check out the newsletter. Check out the merch site. If you're not willing to become a patron, because believe us, we get it. Sometimes it's not financially available. You can always leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook. You can also just subscribe to us and get the word out. Like it, whatever. All that stuff helps us get listens elsewhere. That's important for us. So thanks. Thanks so much. And we hope you have a safe and healthy week. And we'll catch you all next week. Keep Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.